This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 2, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The doctrine of qualified immunity protects police officers from the legal consequences of sometimes egregious violations of Americans' basic liberties. And yet the doctrine isn't exactly written down. And courts, especially the Supreme Court, are loath to take a case that puts that doctrine to any serious scrutiny. William Bowd is an assistant professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School. We talked about qualified immunity and its legal defenses earlier this week. What is written down, there's a federal civil rights statute that says that if the state violates your constitutional rights, you know, you have a right to sue them and they uh, can be held liable for what they've done. That's all the that's all the statute. That's all the law actually says. But the courts have invented a invented a defense, invented the qualified immunity defense, and attached it to the statute. Okay, so what statute are we talking about? So the statute is called uh, has a by its number forty two U S C section nineteen eighty three. Uh, but what it is is it's a civil rights statute that was adopted by Congress right after the Civil War to make sure that there was a remedy when states violated people's civil rights, which they do all the time. All right. So how has it worked out? How has this how has this remedy functioned? Uh, so the remedy has not been as uh, as effective as Congress might have uh, hoped or wanted it to be. Um, because so the when people do get to to bring lawsuits under this under this statute and the courts have recognized, you know, that it is indeed a vehicle for for holding police officers or other state agents accountable. But the courts have also then added to it this these kind of requirements like qualified immunity that in most cases stop plaintiffs from being able to to actually recover or get any kind of relief. You would think that this, uh, you know, if this is supposed to be a remedy and we understand that police forces and other government agents violate people's rights all the time and this was meant to function as some sort of uh, defense against that or at least uh, a way to, to deal with it after it's happened – is, why isn't there more uh, clamoring about uh, qualified immunity as a problem or something that needs to be fixed? I mean, so so I hope there will be more clamoring, but I think at the moment uh, the court has kind of told a couple of stories about why it shouldn't have to give a remedy, uh, that people have been too – people who, who do drill down in the law have been too ready to believe or too ready to accept. And one of the stories the court tells is – uh, maybe there's just sort of has always been understood, you know, traditionally at common law, there's always been understood some to be some kind of a defense or some kind of exception for officers who weren't sure what they were doing was wrong or something wasn't totally clearly unconstitutional. That story is wrong. Like as a matter of history, there was no sort of defense like what the court talks about. But the court has kind of uh, invented that historical narrative and it causes some people to think, well, OK, I guess that's just just the way it was. The other story the court is sometimes told is to kind of look at it from the point of view of the officer and to say, <clears throat> well, if you're a, a poor police officer on the beat and you aren't a lawyer and you don't necessarily know all the law, uh, then maybe it's a little bit unfair to hold you personally accountable for making an error in judgment that turns out to be unconstitutional because, you know, you you might not know. Uh, what's wrong with this story is, you know, we do the exact opposite things to every other regular person. You know, there's an idea in criminal law that ignorance of the law is no excuse. So if you're an ordinary person who's not a lawyer and not aware that you're not supposed to use the insignia of Smokey the Bear without permission or one of the many other federal crimes we probably accidentally commit every day, and you get arrested and then come into court and say, well, I didn't realize that was the law, uh, you go to jail. 
but the court has invented a much more kind of deferential and generous policy for police officers. Yeah, and that seems especially strange when you consider that law enforcement officers are people who are charged with enforcing the law. Like you, you would think you would think that given their the way that they're they're deep in it in terms of dealing with people who are breaking the law, that you would reasonably think, well, clearly they have a better understanding of the law than the average person. And yet we don't expect that as a legal matter. Exactly. If anything, you'd think that police officers, law enforcement officers should be held to a higher standard of understanding and following the law. And what the court does is hold them to a lower standard. So how has uh, qualified immunity been expanded or how has it uh, sort of changed in recent years? Yeah, so it's been a, a gradual change. Um, and at first, the court just sort of emphasized things like when it's really unclear, uh, maybe the police officer's conduct will be okay or, you know, when they acted a little bit in good faith. And then over time, the court has turned that into a much more almost categorical protection. So we call it qualified immunity, but it's almost unqualified immunity. Uh, and in particular, the courts basically say that you need to find another court decision that's already ruled on almost an identical set of facts in order to to hold a police officer liable. So if the police officer, I was just reading a case where the police officers, I think, broke into somebody's home and arrested them for praying or something that, you know, sort of obviously unconstitutional as a matter of religious freedom. Uh, but the court said, well, this is a kind of funny set of facts. We've never actually had a, a praying case before. So uh, I guess there's immunity because it's never been ruled on before. So it comes close to saying, you know, if the courts have never said it's unconstitutional, then it can't be unconstitutional. Okay. So it, it hinges critically then on having a set of facts, it would seem, that is for qualified immunity to not apply. It would seem that the set of facts that you're trying to uh, grapple with has to mirror so closely some other issue that the that courts have dealt with that you feel comfortable making a ruling. Why are judges so? Uh, I mean, are judges very, just very reluctant to to say, "Yeah, this is close enough. You don't have qualified immunity in this case." I mean, so not not all judges are the same, but but overall, yes. Uh, overall, um, I think courts are reluctant to say. Uh, we think the police officer should have known, and the Supreme Court is especially reluctant. So the Supreme Court has had dozens of these cases over the past several decades, and I think there have only been two where the court has found a violation to be so egregious that they thought there should be there should be liability here. The, the thing the court says is the only people who should be held liable are the plainly incompetent or those who knowingly violate the law. If you're not plainly incompetent or doing it on purpose, then the, the judges don't want to hold you liable. Now, you mentioned here in the California Law Review, your uh, recent article on this subject, the uh, court has given qualified immunity cases pride of place on the court's docket. It exercises jurisdiction in cases that would not otherwise satisfy the cert criteria and reaches out to summarily reverse lower courts at an unusual pace. What does that mean? So the way the Supreme Court normally decides whether to take a case is it looks to see whether this is a, a kind of a legal issue of recurring national importance. You know, is this a legal issue that's come up in a bunch of different courts and the courts have disagreed on it? And then the Supreme Court decides to get involved. They don't just get involved because they think there's been a mistake below. They're not a court of sort of general error correction. And there's a small part of their docket where they make an exception to that, where they deem some sort of areas of the law so important that they really do just 
sit and wait and see if they think the lower courts messed it up. And if so, they ride in to fix it, uh, usually because they, they perceive there's something especially important and unusual about that area of law. Uh, and they have made qualified immunity one of the most central parts of that that portion of their docket where they kind of reach out and correct mis correct mistakes, what they think are mistakes that otherwise they would never bother to, to reach out for. Now, is it, this is different from uh... – you know, a circuit split where there's this question of law that, that only the Supreme Court can resolve. You're saying that the Supreme Court sort of reaches out and says, no, 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 you're wrong here and we don't want to see this kind of case again. Right. So there's no circuit split because these questions are very much specific to their facts. And so in a way, every case is unique. And the court reaches out and actually sort of dives into the facts in a way it ordinarily wouldn't. And it also does this, by the way, without even bothering to ask the parties to give uh, an oral argument or to write regular briefs about the case. It just sort of summarily, before even before even hearing the case in a normal way, says, we don't even need to hear anything more. We know this was wrong and we're reversing it now. And it always goes into law enforcement's favor? Uh, that's right. All right. So it, it would seem that then there's a difficult lift here to get a case like that before the Supreme Court, and it would it would also seem that lower court judges really just would need to have some sort of sea change in their attitude about this issue in order to make this a problem for higher courts. Is that right? I think that's right. Although there has been some uh, some sign of some members of the court, you know, being troubled by their own court's practices. So. Uh, a couple of years ago, Justice Sotomayor uh, noted in one of these summary reversals that the court's uh, sort of practice of reaching out for these cases was maybe problematic and something they should should rethink. And more recently, Justice Thomas uh, wrote a concurring opinion saying that he was troubled by the lack of any textual or historical or legal basis for qualified immunity, and he'd be open to rethinking it in a future case. That's just two. Uh, it's, not, it's not a majority of the court. It may never be a majority of the court, but I think there are at least some people in robes who are starting to worry about what's going on here. So uh, with Justice Sotomayor, um, Justice Thomas, where was Justice Scalia in all of this when these cases were bubbling up? Did he ever express any any broad skepticism of, of well, you know, what you say is it's it's somewhat invented as a doctrine? Uh, so Justice Scalia, in, in uh, maybe typical fashion for him, he admitted that the doctrine was invented. <laughs> uh, in, a, in an opinion he wrote in a case called Crawford L. But he said that it was okay that it was invented because the court had already invented, uh, in a sense, a bunch of precedents in favor of civil rights plaintiffs. And this was just kind of evening the score. Uh, so as he looked back the past 50 years, he, he even at some point called it, you know, an invented defense to an invented statute. Uh, and so he thought there was a kind of two wrongs make a right principle for qualified immunity. The thing that brings this home to me is the idea that for uh, a cop who engages in some activity that would send me to prison, he uh, gets a couple weeks off maybe and uh, internal affairs does their thing and then that police officer more than likely is going to return to his job. You know, what? where's the weak <laughs> – where's the chink in the armor here? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean I... – <sighs> One of the things that's deeply troubling about the current system of police accountability is really that there's no uh, good source of accountability. Uh, you can be sent to prison, but it's up to the prosecutors to decide whether to bring the case, and prosecutors rarely want to prosecute police officers. 
That's why Congress enacted the civil rights statute to let victims decide to bring the cases so we weren't dependent on police officers to enforce uh, the law. But as we've just seen, the courts have kind of found a way to, to read that away. You can in theory sue the city, uh, which doesn't have qualified immunity and doesn't have these defenses, but there's a whole other set of doctrines that basically makes it very, very hard to attribute to the city the acts of individual police officers. So most of the time, it's just a matter of, of uh, the it's up to the government to decide whether or not to correct its own mistakes, and often they don't. And even if you required uh, police officers, and Clark Neely and I have discussed this in the past, if you required police officers to carry some sort of liability insurance, it's not clear that insurance companies would look at the present situation and say, yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's not clear that insurance companies would look at this and say, well, your rates are going to have to go up because of this event, because there's no payout. Right. As long as there's no payout, then it doesn't affect the insurance company's bottom lines. So there are a few areas, you know, sometimes involving uh, actual wrongful death where people die, where occasionally there will be a payout. And in those areas, actually, the insurance companies do uh come in and, and affect premiums, and sometimes they even institute training programs for the police officers because they are one of the few people with an actual incentive to do something about it. But that rarely happens because as it stands, the law rarely uh, requires anybody to pay for the police officer's mistakes. If we're looking at this from the big picture and, and, and looking at cases from across the country, is there any clear data about how many of these cases end up resulting in some sort of uh, remedy for the people who've been uh, injured by the police? Uh, so there have there have been some recent studies by a law professor, Joanna Schwartz at UCLA, who's trying to get a beat on this. And I know of some other studies that are in progress. Uh, it looks like there are, are relatively few, but it's a little hard to tell because so many cases are just dismissed for a settlement. And that may mean that the plaintiff gets a, a real remedy, but it often probably means they get almost nothing. Uh, so we know that very, very few of these cases ever make it to a real sort of trial and verdict where there's a clear public uh, remedy. Um, and it looks like very few of them sort of really result in relief at all, but it's it's a little hard to tell because in the shadows. Is there anything that states can do to make the costs of misconduct fall more directly on the individual departments that employed those officers? So states have their own parallel system of liability and their own parallel system of immunity. And if they want to, they can be uh, much more protective of their citizens and create uh, liabilities for their police officers and not create the same kind of immunities. For the most part, they don't. They tend to, to award relatively strong immunities as well uh, because the police are an important, uh, important political force in every state. But a state that wanted to certainly could. It certainly could experiment with actually having accountability. You paint a really bad picture here. Um, can you give me your prediction and your hope for what qualified immunity uh, will look like 10 years from now? Uh, so unfortunately, my prediction and my hope may not may not be the same. Uh, I paint a, a bad picture because I, I just I think people have to understand that the picture is pretty is pretty bad and it's pretty dispiriting. And a lot of people don't realize how much work the law is doing in just uh, keeping the constitutional rights from being enforced. My hope would be, uh, first and foremost, that the Supreme Court just lets well enough alone and stops reaching out quite so aggressively uh, to make sure that, you know, immunity is is aggressively and quickly applied. And maybe even 
my next hope would be that the court even uh, takes some cases where it thinks that the police officers should be held accountable, where there's no immunity, just so that there are some examples that everybody can point to about what what we know crosses the line. Uh, I think that's the most we could hope for in the next 10 years. William Bout is an assistant professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.